Promise No Promises The Tail and the Tongue Episode 5 Hybrid Worlds Within Unusual Realities The podcast Promise No Promises unfolds a further chapter The Tail and the Tongue this series of new episodes arises from conversations between curator and writer Sonia Fernandez-Pan and guests from different storytelling practices and world-making experiences. For a conversation to take place, it is sufficient when two people start talking to each other. However, conversations are never happening just between two people. A conversation holds many bodies, places, stories and experiences. It develops languages and creates interpersonal and temporary dialects. Sharing is also a way of collecting seemingly individual circumstances. Our bodies host many narratives, speaking borrowed words and making stories an important part of who we become. Stories travel between bodies swelling in them. Always in motion, they have no end. Words make worlds in which reality and its fictions travel through the tongue to become tales. Hybrid Worlds Within Unusual Realities is the fifth episode that follows a conversation with writer Giovanna Rivero, author of numerous short stories and novels, essays, chronicles and academic articles, among her many books written in Spanish are Tucson Historia Colaterales from 2008, 98 Segundos Sin Sombra, Para Comerte Mejor, and more recently, Tierra Fresca de Su Tumba. I got to know Giovanna Rivero thanks to fellow writer Ana Jurba who shared with me many of her literary references at a time when reading fiction became a vital experience for me after the emotional effects of the past winter. In the face of severely reduced social contact and the remarkable disappearance of spontaneity in life, the living creatures of fiction became meaningful pandemic companions. Living creatures of fiction is Giovanna Rivero's name for what many call characters. But characters are much more than characters, not only for those who create them, but also for those who meet them through reading. Another term Joanna uses is incarnations, appealing to their corporeal and material dimension. The subjectivities that exist in fiction have as many bodies as there are readers who feel and embody them. Our epistolary conversation began by talking about horror and the monstrous, notions associated with Giovanna Rivero's writing. In another interview, she will say that delirium is a narrative, something that brings into contact things that apparently are not in contact. I think it is possible to affirm that to read Giovanna Rivero is to participate in a powerful imagination delirium. That was my experience with Tucson, collateral stories, a book impossible to classify into the usual categories of literary criticism. Many genres flow intensely and rapidly through her novel at the same time. Science, fiction, detective fiction, fantasy, and of course, reality. 
All of them inhabit a story made up of many stories that do not follow a predictable sequence. The hybrid worlds of Tucson are part of unusual and extraordinary realities of the world we live in. They are also the result of her first encounter with the United States, a cultural context very different from her place of origin, Bolivia. In this world, to be a realist is to border on the Gothic, borrowing Giovanna's statement here to refer to current times. Science in itself is already a very Gothic knowledge. The scientific quest to overcome death is also part of those other forms of life that literature makes possible. When asking how the Bolivian reality appears and becomes present in her stories, Giovanna once again gives prominence to characters. Bolivia is an energy, also an aura, which flows through her characters, which makes them being and acting in a specific way. They are beings that are never closed, that ask to be extended by each reader, intentionally saturated with culture and space. Her latest book of short stories, Tierra Fresca de su Tumba, appears at the end of our conversation. In each of the stories, the body is present in many ways. Not only do the characters remind us again and again of the materiality of the human body, but the environments they inhabit also reveal its strong material condition. Body appears from flesh as an uncontrollable, mutating territory that can also betray us. This sensitivity to the environment is very present in Giovanna Rivero's thinking, whose ethic calls for the importance of all lives, human and non-human, as part of a whole on and off planet Earth. Our conversation ended with a mention of anthropofiction a term coined by Giovanna, which deals with the relationship between literature and reality through a shared situation of crisis. The crisis of today's narrative and traditional genres cannot be understood as an isolated and purely literary phenomenon. It is embedded in a greater awareness of our own extinction. This moment of mourning and intimate relationship with death from life is nevertheless a moment of splendor and desire for imagination. Not only is imagination able to foresee reality, but it also can help us to think and feel otherwise. This encounter with Giovanna Rivero took place in the late summer of 2021, during the months of August and September. Giovanna was in Lake Mary, the city where she lives in the United States, and I was in Berlin. I feel that Giovanna's definition of storytelling as an act of love is also something that is part of this podcast with her. I should start by telling you that I was never and I am not a fandom reader at all. 
It is true that I am deeply captivated by stories in which, let's say, reality is defied by an intimate psychological dimension which displaces what we understand by absolute logic. But I must say that I am not drawn to a text because it is classified as fantastic or science fiction. I approach it intuitively, obeying the way literary language catches me like a cobweb does a fly. However, my first encounter with what I consider a terrifying text happened by accident. I remember I was very young when among the books I took from my grandfather's night table, who was an experienced reader of westerns, I took Pedro Paramo by Juan Rulfo. I guess my grandfather bought a copy believing it was another western with cowboys and lots of dust on the horizon, some of which is in Pedro Paramo as well, of course. Yet, what I discovered left me breathless. It was a matter of not recognizing exactly what was the source of fear in the story, of being shaken by the language, and intuiting that a portal was opened to a different and wonderful way of narrating. I was a great reader of comics and was accustomed to illustrated violence, but what I perceived in Pedro Paramo came from the caverns of the imagination and spoke directly to the unconscious. Well, there are endearing monsters that are updated in both my fiction and my way of metaphorizing the complicated issues of reality, from climate change to scientific experimentation. One of those monsters is Frankenstein, whose sinister romanticism never ceases to amaze me. But there are also the monsters of Marosa di Giorgio, who distorts nature, flowers, and childhood as a reminder that horror can live at home in its apparent domestic security. I believe then that fiction, if fiction risks its pursuits, if it gives everything, can address those complex areas of human nature, its shames and its colossal mistakes. And I think it is its duty to do so, saying, enunciating within fiction is elaborated in the interstices of that which cannot be named to recognize where fiction must be silent so that silence may speak is part of a writer's job. What is the greatest horror in literature? You are asking me. Let me please answer you with irony. Writing to moralize or to ideologize. That is pamphletary writing. That strikes me as an undesirable horror. It is true that characters 
who are real, who are alive, cannot escape ideology and a moral sense of life. But that comes as a consequence and not as an a priori. Now, the most beautiful horror in literature seems to me to be the one that puts you in contact with your Jungian shadow, your inner terrible shadow, which makes you shiver because you have discovered that the Minotaur is inside your own labyrinth. That is why, perhaps, a poetic horror that I think about again and again is that of Orpheus, when he realizes that the sight of Eurydice's beautiful face can only last for an instant. No one descends into the kingdom of the dead with impunity. I wrote Tucson between 2007 and 2008, under the influence of the tremendous culture shock that I experienced in my new life in the United States. The sudden uprooting from my country placed me in other existential coordinates, and everything seemed strange or alien to me. It was not only about the language, but about the entire landscape the snow, the loneliness, the architecture. I remember living in a building that was destined for demolition, and that imminence often made me think of the transitory, of the promise of our disappearance. I used to observe people a lot, and the question that haunted me was if they were happy, because I was not. I wanted to be able to recognize the signs of happiness. I would imagine people's lives or their tragedies. And that is how I decided to empty into writing that intersection of themes, obsessions, and topics that range from politics to esotericism. I also wanted to be able to get closer to the paranoia and conspiracy of this country. That is why in Tucson there is a president who survives his physical deterioration thanks to the young organs that a team of extraterrestrials provides him with. And there are immigrants who cross a desolate landscape, moved by the dream of acting on Broadway. But the only spotlight that illuminates them is that of an immigration helicopter. All of this is there in an entropic manner. I think it is a rare book for rare readers. Tucson is a kind of dizzying record of what I perceived during those years. I also wrote it following the advice of a professor who told me to take advantage of the trance of culture shock. He told me that this uncanny feeling would never happen again. And that is what I did. It is true that this book defies genres probably because I, myself, as a foreigner who did not know any English, was going through an experience that made me doubt the narrative format that I had been cultivating up to that moment. My language was no longer a point of connection with the world. 
That is why Tucson has a register that plays with the sound of translation at a distance from the word that is not absolutely equivalent. I have not written that way again because my sensitivity has already worked along other paths. But I love that book very much because I experience it with the wonderful freedom that foreignness gives. I was doubly foreign in a foreign country with this foreign language and with a stock of narrative forms that were no longer relevant for what I wanted to write. I was doubly foreign because the new language involves not only a constant exercise in translation and therefore a new way of naming the world, but also because the landscape in its beautiful strangeness forced me to think of my own body as a traveling ship. The experience was looking at myself with detachment, looking at myself in surprise, discovering myself as another, as Rambaud would say. I'll start by answering the last question. I know this in advance. While the writing itself will reveal its mystery to me as far as the characters and their decisions are concerned, I know how far I want to take a text in terms of length or overlapping stories. Now, this doesn't mean that the boundaries between genres are strict. On the contrary, I aspire for readers to make a pact with the world I present to them by involving their own imaginations, to the point that when they read a story of mine, they feel that they can continue writing it because it is an open, porous text, subject to other developments. My writing has matured, I think, in the sense that the anecdotal element, the final surprise, matters much less to me now. The energy of my narrative is focused on building a world, on creating characters that are living creatures, not narratological functions servile to the finishing blow of the last paragraph. I don't want my characters to be pieces that I move to foster an external conflict. The characters, their subjectivities, are the conflict. I was born and raised in a provincial city, far from the hegemonic notes of economic activity and culture. This has definitely marked my writing, as I tend to look at the world from a lateral off-center angle. Cities have been a fundamental topic since the rise of capitalist modernity. In fact, the Industrial Revolution made the city the perfect setting to place a desolate subject, alienated from work, inhabited by a machine. 
that subject's spleen is different from the provincial subject's notion of self. The provincial landscape, for me, paints an almost utopian horizon, as if life, with its intensity about to occur, were always far away, beyond, unattainable. The subject knows itself, then, to be very small, but inhabited by its own spirit. In that sense, there is a provincial ontology and poiesis, a kind of humility, but also of deep resistance in the presence of the codes that want to strip you of even your consciousness. Provincial boredom is a way of calling a halt to that stubborn position, determined to sink into the dizzying speed of the cities. That would be the poetic position. Of course, as it seems that nothing happens in a provincial town or city, as its scandals are small, it is an anti-literary place, far from the grand narratives. That is also the kind of literature I am interested in cultivating. Throughout my fiction, Bolivia has been present in one way or another, either as a specter or as a living space. I must clarify that this is not a mere telluric drive or about making out of my text an opportunity to exoticize Bolivia. On the contrary, the Bolivian ethos is present in many of my stories and in my novels especially in 98 seconds without shadow, as a mark of the singularity of my characters. I'm not interested in creating neutral characters whose identity is forged beyond all identifying marks, but characters who are saturated with culture and space. So Bolivia is an energy that runs through my characters, which invests them with an ideology. Bolivian political history appears in the lives of my characters as an aura, because the politics and history of our nations are a part of everyday life, of the way we make decisions. It is the same for my characters. The body is something that moves me deeply because it is in its flesh where we inscribe the passage of time and affect. The classic dichotomy of body and spirit, a separate and sometimes opposite aspect, is what has prevented us from better appreciating the emotional autonomy of the body. Phrases like to hate viscerally or to feel it from the bowels contain truths that seem fundamental to me. The body, in this sense, has a will that can be imposed on that of logical consciousness. Diseases, the secret deterioration of cells, 
but also a body that proves invincible despite its apparent fragility, are forms of material independence and even betrayal of the reasoning that seeks to control everything. I don't believe that writing is mere abstraction or immateriality. On the contrary, it is a device with the power to concretize and shape the things of the world. We cry or laugh reading a book, and this emotional or affective dimension happens in the flesh. It is recorded in the body. That is why I like to call my characters incarnations. I think it is fairer with their condition as living creatures. Indeed, at this civilizational limit, to be realistic is to accept that we have let the jungle shadow overflow, and that we, therefore, definitely live in Gothic times. For me, the Gothic is an aesthetic, sensitive, and ontological manifestation of our most intimate demons, a daemon, as Jung would also call it. That said, I think that science, always so focused on experimenting with the body, is the first to give in to the drive to create monsters, to seek in the microcellular world a spiritual explanation for existence, a key to transcend. Those ambitions are very gothic. And well, I don't have to give many more details to convey that the pandemic has placed us in a dimension where death and scientific advancement follow parallel lines that stimulate each other. Additionally, the mass of bodies that fell prey to COVID-19 put us in a situation where we had to dispose of traditional funeral rites because they were unviable in terms of time and their capacity to spread the virus the bodies turned down by COVID became another algorithm. The Gothic sensibility has been part of who I am and how I approach writing since long before cultural journalism began to use the word, sometimes just as a quick adjective. However, I have never liked to classify the complexity of writing or the ambition of my pursuit with that term. It seems to me that placing many contemporary literary proposals within the same taxonomy is a way of maintaining something that has many more nuances within a controllable epistemic domain. For me, the Gothic sensibility is a rich dimension in which archetypes and ancestral semiotics and, above all, the desire to look at death directly converge. Some of the voices and worlds 
with which I engage in dialogue are those of Marosa Di Giorgio, William Goyen, Claude-Louis Combet, Shirley Jackson, Flannery O'Connor, Julio Cortázar, and Claire Keegan, among others. In their stories, we see the ground of realism crack, and that erosion produces a dark literary language that seems fascinating to me. I wrote that text a couple of years before the pandemic broke out. I had been reading a lot of science fiction, and it seemed to me that the texts were about to exhaust their speculative capacity, because almost anything was possible. The notion of that limitation distressed me, because it was assumed that the literary imagination could always be ahead of its time and take the place of the ancient prophets. Science fiction suddenly looked more realistic than ever. That is how, in an ironic gesture, I arrived at the term anthropofiction. The idea was to reflect from a narrative perspective on how to account for the planetary crisis that we have unleashed through our human action throughout the centuries and how this requires us to think beyond our literary genres. Anthropofiction, in that sense, is nothing but a textualization with greater or lesser mimetic intensity of this crisis that humanity faces. Personally, I try to face this moment with the political position of hope seeing in this here and now an opportunity to articulate another type of human subject, one who has the humility to recognize their belonging to the cosmos without positioning humankind as the superior species, to think of ourselves as a superior species, whether with respect to animals or stones, is to continue to feed the seed of fascism. Promise No Promises is a podcast series produced by the Women's Center for Excellence, a research project by the Institute Art, Gender, Nature, FHNW, Academy of Art and Design in Basel, conceived as a think tank tasked to assess, develop and propose new social languages and methods to understand the role of women in the arts, culture, science and technology, as well as in all knowledge areas that are interconnected with the field of culture today. If you're interested to get more information about further podcasts and events related to this project, please visit dertank.ch. That's dertank.ch. 
or request information or subscribe to our newsletter at info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. That's info.kunst.hgk at fhnw.ch. Recording and editing, Sonia Fernandez-Pan. Final editing and voiceover, Elena Ziesel. Music, Stephen McAvoy. Research Team, Tabea Rotfuchs and Marion Ritzmann. Press and Communication, Anna Franke and Sarina Scheidegger. Technical Support, Esther Hunziger, Karin Bohrer, Konrad Siegel and Chris Handberg. Copyright by Institute Art, Gender, Nature, FHNW 2021.